feminism, sugar, and EMDR. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, I'll talk anyway. We've got problems, he won't solve them. But I'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Hi, friends, and welcome to Ask Science Mike. This is a weekly podcast where we believe that every sincere question deserves an honest and non-judgmental response. I'm your host, Mike McCarg, the Science Mike of the podcast title, and it's so good to be talking with you this week. I know that many of us are spending a lot more time at home right now, and uh, you know, before long, probably all of us will be spending a lot more time at home as our global culture adapts to a very dangerous global pandemic. And so Ask Science Mike is a space every week where we can have an evidence-based, emotionally focused discussion about curiosity. And, uh, you know, the show has been a little more popular lately uh, as people have been looking for information about the virus. And so uh, I'm going to start adding a COVID-19 update to the program every week. We'll do that right up top before we get into our questions because we also don't want to just talk about COVID-19 all the time. Our bodies and our brains also need a break from the constant anxiety on this pandemic. On that note, friends, I have been doing so many new things to try to help us all navigate through this pandemic, not only giving you uh, my take on the science behind the pandemic and the recommendations that public health experts are recommending for us to protect ourselves and protect others from this pandemic, but also to navigate the difficult feelings of Greece, Greece, not Greece, of grief and fear and loss. I said Greece because I combined Greece and loss in my brain there on accident. Um we have so many difficult feelings right now. And so to do that, I've been doing a few things. Number one, on both Facebook and Instagram, uh, you can find me at Mike McCarg on both of those. Uh, I've been doing most days a nightly check-in. Nightly will vary because I try to try pick different time zones, night times to do that nightly check-in. But it's a time when we sit and focus in the present. We uh, get out of guilt and shame and anxiety and sit in the moment, and we just talk about whatever folks would like to talk about. I've started to invite some of my friends who are in media and have public platforms to join me for those. You never know who will show up. And then also, you show up. I've been inviting you to come on screen with me as we process our feelings. I've also launched three new weekly web series. These are quick little topical check-ins. We have Encouragement Mondays. Uh, we have Autism Fridays, and we have Science Wednesdays, and those are on Instagram TV, on Facebook, and on my new YouTube channel. I've been making the YouTubes now. <laughs> um, so if you know, if you want to hear more from me, uh, that's all available there for you. So you can find me on YouTube, on Instagram, on Facebook, all those platforms. I'll have links to those in the show notes this week if you'd like to check it out. Of course, they're always available on AskScienceMike.com. And uh, I've been really surprised how popular those are. Oh, one other weekly series uh, that we kicked off last week that ended up being the most popular at all, and that Sunday cocktail hour with Mike and Jenny. Jenny McCarg being my wife, who you may know as the Honey Badger. Uh, we make a couple of cocktails. We turn on the camera, and we see what happens 
Last week was a ton of fun, so we're going to do that again this week. And uh, maybe most weeks. We'll see. Uh, now, to be clear, I'm doing all this in ways that make sure I have plenty of emotional and mental energy. If I get too tired to make a video one day, I just don't. So when I say these happen most days, that is true. Um, and then I also want to let you know that in the very near future, watch out. Uh, Hillary McBride and I are going to launch a new live web show that will also be available as a podcast called How We Feel. And that's focused on our emotions um, and how we process those. I'm really excited about it. We've been working on it a long time, and it is going to be a really, really incredible experience, as you would expect with anything involving Dr. Hillary McBride. Finally, and this is a huge announcement, you know, I announced a book tour, uh, and then a week later, we started getting shelter-in-place orders. And so I said, stay tuned, more is coming about the book tour, I'm not canceling it. And you know what? It's totally true. I am not canceling my book tour, but I am restructuring it. And friends, I am so, so excited about this. If you don't know that my book, You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass, comes out April the 28th, 2020, now you do. And obviously, it is dangerous and irresponsible to tour the country in person right now as we try to flatten the curve and combat COVID-19. But that doesn't mean we can't be together. I mean, there's no question that social distancing saves lives, but friends, we are also social people who long to be together, and no one understands that better than I do. I explored those very contradictions between what we desire and what can be best for us moment by moment in my new book. So I've been thinking with my team and my publicist and my publisher, how can we both save lives through social distancing and have the social contact that we so desperately need to be well. And the way I'm going to do that is I am going to come to your living room virtually. <laughs> We're going to do an interactive webcast that's going to be delightful. I'll talk to you about some of the content in the book, and then we will open it up for interactive questions. And the most amazing thing is we're still going to do this city by city. So when you join this webcast, you're going to be in a virtual room with other people who are in your community. You will meet faces that as we get through the pandemic, you may be able to meet in person. And in the meantime, we're going to be creating private online meeting spaces for all of you to connect with each other during social distancing. It is going to be wonderful. Something I'm also really excited about is we're doing this in partnership with some of the most amazing independent bookstores in the country at a time that they need it most. So that's what we're going to do for the You're a Miracle in-home tour. Of course, when you grab your ticket, you're going to get a personalized copy of the book. It's really cool. You still get a signed copy. We're still going to handle all of that fulfillment. And listen, we know that right now people are facing all kinds of financial uncertainty. So we also want you to know that unlimited scholarship tickets will be available for each tour stop. If you have, are out of work, if you're facing income uncertainty, don't worry. You can still attend this event. The way it works is you would grab a ticket, either paid or free. Uh, you'll get a link that goes to a website that lets you start reading the first three chapters of the book today. You get to start reading immediately. You'll get access to a private Facebook group 
dedicated to people in your area. You'll find a link to the live event itself, and you'll find a form that lets you request your personalized inscription. Those will be book plates that can be stuck in the book. If you are going to one of our reseller tours in leg one with independent bookstores, that'll be a postcard. If you do one of the events that uh, I fulfill all the logistics for in other cities, we want to do something special for our independent booksellers. You'll get your book within a few days of the event shipped directly to your home. Uh, And then if you've worked uh, with one of our independent booksellers in the first leg of the tour, which will be launch week, you'll also get a personalized book plate that you can pick up from the bookstore once local officials allow the store to open again. And if you go to one of the second leg of the tour events that I'm hosting in a lot of cities, uh, then you will get a postcard that comes with your book. And friends, I just can't wait to see you in this tour. And I will see you. You, There will be an opportunity for you to see me face-to-face. So we are kicking this tour off, the launch week of the book with leg one, April 27th will still be Atlanta, Georgia with Acapella Books. April 28th will still be Nashville, Tennessee with Parnassus Books. April 29th will still be Minneapolis, Minnesota with uh, Magers and Quinn. April 30th will be Seattle, Washington with our friends at Third Place Books. And May 8th will be Los Angeles, California with Vroman's Bookstore. Those events are still happening at the advertised dates and times. Uh, We'll also still have Portland, Oregon the first week, although tickets won't be on sale for that until next week when we also put uh, ticket sales on a bunch of other cities. So far for this first two legs of the tour, we're going to do 21 cities, and we will add more over time as well, especially when we see how this works and uh, we work all the kinks out. I'm telling you, it's going to be wonderful. We're all at home. So why not get together anyway? And in doing so, we can not only get a book I'm really excited about that I think will be helpful and useful to you at this time during a pandemic, but also support our independent bookstores at a time that they really need it. I can't wait to see you. You can learn more by going to AskScienceMike.com and tapping on the events button. And every week, we'll start the program with a COVID-19 update, and there are two pertinent pieces of information I'd love to share with you that seem timely and important. The first thing I'd like to talk about is masks. There's so much confusion about if we should be wearing masks and what masks do if we wear them. And then there's different kinds of masks. You've probably heard that there's homemade and cloth masks. You've heard that there's surgical masks, and then you've heard there's something called N95 masks. And all these masks serve different purposes. Uh, The big thing to know is that uh, none of these masks other than N95 will protect you from getting COVID-19. And N95 masks aren't perfectly able to protect you, although they are. uh, They do offer some assistance in avoiding uh, catching the virus from someone else who has it. Uh, But the reason there's been such confusing messaging is now that our hospitals are being overloaded with COVID-19 patients, We just don't have a lot of supplies that hospitals and medical practitioners need. So we've encouraged people not to wear masks and not to buy masks. Uh, And that guidance still holds. If you have surgical masks or N95 masks, the best thing you can do with those is donate them to a hospital where they are desperately needed while we try to secure and manufacture more of those masks. But we also know 
that COVID-19 gets spread through aerosol particles. So when you cough or when you sneeze or when you speak, you release tiny little droplets of saliva and the COVID-19 virus can sit in those droplets. And it seems in some studies can sit in those droplets for some time. And so uh, one thing we're finding that can help, that's an additional tool alongside social distancing and case isolation and all the other protocols that we're keeping in place is for people to cover their faces uh, with something. It does not have to be a medical mask. It should not be a medical mask. Again, hospitals need all of those. But a face covering, as opposed to a mask, can start catching those droplets you release. And if you're asymptomatic, meaning you have COVID-19, but you don't have any symptoms, wearing a face covering can help lower the chance that you spread the virus to someone else. So what we're asking people to do, it's already mandatory in Los Angeles, uh, but everyone should be doing this everywhere, is to wear a face covering whenever you leave your home. That can be a scarf. That can be uh, you know, uh, something you sew yourself. Uh, it can be literally any cloth that you can put over your mouth and nose and still breathe when you are out of uh, your home. Uh, if, for those of you who live in cold climates, you probably have a lot of this stuff really uh, readily available. Anyone anywhere probably has a scarf or something like that that you can kind of wrap around your nose and your mouth. And it's really simple. It does two things. One, it does catch some of those particles when you cough or when you sneeze or when you talk. But it also really helps you remember not to touch your face. So uh, a lot of us have noticed that we have a hard time not touching our face during uh, this pandemic. And it's a nice reminder when you reach up and you touch cloth instead of skin. It's like, oh, wow, I'm not supposed to do that. Uh, so it's really helpful when you're out in public situations. The second thing for this week's COVID-19 update is to talk about curves. Friends, we are watching some really terrifying numbers happen in terms of the total number of new cases every day of COVID-19 in the U.S. and the death every day. And we expect those numbers will continue to rise in most places for a few weeks because even after you put social distancing in place, it takes time for the curve to respond because so many people uh, are asymptomatic. It'll take them time for those cases that have already spread to you know, manifest themselves and then for those people to need medical care. Uh, but here's the good news. It should be in a few weeks we see the highest number of new cases and, and uh, you know, shortly after that, the highest number of deaths per day, and then that will start to decline. And in places where the curve came on quickly, it'll also probably decline relatively quickly. Now, in most cities, we will continue to see cases and continue to see deaths every single day for months. And unfortunately, uh, that's, that's kind of baked into all the models. But if people really do social distancing, and our data is telling us that not everyone is doing a good job social distancing, folks. If you, gosh, if you are disregarding this order uh, because you just can't be bothered to stay at home and watch Netflix or something, uh, you are killing people and it's not okay. And I, I, I hate to sound impatient and I hate to sound sharp, but you need to keep your butt at home unless you work for a hospital or a grocery store or some other essential sector that keeps people alive and fed and in their homes. Everybody else, keep your butt at home. No dinner parties, no coffee dates, no visiting with friends. You 
will kill people. Stop it. But assuming we are doing that, and as more people social distance, we're going to see the curve flatten and then decline, and then we will reach the most critical point in the pandemic so far. Because at this point, many of us will have been at our homes three to five weeks, some people just a couple of weeks so far, and we'll see that curve go down and we'll say, great, now is the time that I can go back outside and see all my friends and go back to work. And no, you may not. I'm preparing you now ahead of time to know that people will be stir crazy and they will see a low number of new cases and they'll think they can go outside. And if people do that on mass, guess what happens? The curve comes right back. So friends, continue to social distance even as we see the curve flatten and decline. I'm telling you, these conversations are coming. Our impatient president, when he sees the numbers go down, will want to open the country back up, and that is a terrible idea. It is a terrible idea and can result in millions of deaths. COVID-19 is highly contagious and highly deadly. and That's a bad combination. So we're going to have to work carefully with public health experts and virologists and epidemiologists to figure out how to structure our society for the next maybe 12 to 18 months. Wow, does that sound scary. I know. But it's what we're going to have to do or else the loss of life is going to be staggering and a staggering loss of life, guess what, will wreck the economy anyway. So we're going to have to protect lives, and then we're going to have to work together to figure out how to structure our economy in a way that makes sure that we don't face a mass homelessness problem, that people can still eat. There's a lot of work ahead of us. Right now in this period, how do we help? We stay home and we social distance. As we get used to that, then we will start looking at ways of reviving the economy Because we see already, it's so tragic. Marginalized people are already being hit the hardest by the economic collapse. We're already seeing that. Uh, And so we're going to have to take serious steps of intervention to protect people's basic standard of living. It's going to be necessary. It's going to be essential. And we're going to have to continue social distancing. So... This week, I'm reminding you, one, cover your face when you go outside. It really does help flatten the curve. Two, continue social distancing. And three, as we see these infection and death curves flatten and decline, don't get antsy and rush back outside or else we'll be right back in this situation again. Hello, Science Mike. Um, I have a question about feminism. Um, I recently got into a debate with a male friend about feminism, and I am a feminist woman, and he is a male who claims that the ideology um, of feminism is harmful to men and women, uh, which I found to be really strange. Um, For example, he argued that feminists believe that women should be happy with only a career and that feminists condemn people who value interpersonal relationships. And I don't know what books he's read, but that's not the feminism that I subscribe to, not the feminism that I've researched pretty thoroughly, I think. Um, 
And in fact, it, to me, it sounds a bit like a patriarchal perversion of the true concept of feminism and of female empowerment. So my question is, uh, what made you become a feminist? Um, since you are a man of science, you call yourself an empiricist. What is it um, about the evidence of the positive effects of feminism uh, that appealed to you and ultimately made you call yourself a feminist. Um, are there any feminist ideologies that you reject? And if so, what are those? Um, I'd really like to have a dis- uh, like a civil discussion with my friend about this issue, but I don't know how to explain the layers of understanding to get him to understand my point of view. Um, I'm a woman of color, so the concepts make sense to me on a personal level. I'm curious about how a person finds feminism as you did being a white male from the South, which is fascinating to me. How can I explain this to a man who has not personally experienced the damaging effects of patriarchy? I know this was a really long question, but I wanted to give you some context to work with. Thank you so much for your podcast. It's been amazing to me, and uh, I hope you can answer my question. Bye! Well, what a wonderful question that I get to answer. Thank you. Um, I just, I'm literally smiling. <laughs> I love to talk about why I love feminism. Thank you for the invitation. That feels great. I mean, the first thing I would say is it sounds to me like so often happens is your friend who is a man is fighting a straw man argument of feminism, a caricature of feminism instead of actual feminism, because of course that's actually easier. If we mischaracterize as feminists uh, as hating men or dismissing families or uh, any of the other caricatures that come from folks that in most extreme iterations would call feminists feminazis or something like that, um, then that's much easier than actually taking feminism on its substance. On the substance, feminism is just the radical notion that women are every bit as much people as men and deserve all of the same rights. Feminism at its heart is simply a naming of egalitarianism. There's nothing in feminism that says women are superior to men And men, because they have been indoctrinated by the system of patriarchy, are so often defensive against that notion because patriarchy sets up men in a position so above women that equality suddenly feels like a demotion. Uh, And so, of course, there's a tremendous amount of social energy and economic interest invested in maintaining the system of patriarchy. As you well know, I don't say that to lecture you. I say that to catch up everyone listening to our conversation right now. Now, you, I'll start with something that you um, asked, and is that, is there anything in feminism that I reject? And no, there is not anything in feminism that I reject, but we also don't want to paint feminism as a monolith. There is a great number of feminist ideas and feminist movements. Uh, These are sometimes called waves in feminism. And so there's an ongoing discussion and debate about what is feminism and what feminism means. And I listen to that and I pay attention with much excitement. 
And as a man, I keep my mouth shut about it. <laughs> so I'm not going to like start critiquing some specific stances and quote feminism, unquote, because that's just not a thing. When I talk about feminism, I'm talking about the notion that women are people and all people deserve equal rights. All people deserve equal rights. So feminism is a part of my egalitarianism and an essential part. I will say I find, I find feminism to be most useful and most beneficial when it is informed by womanism, which is a women's of color movement around uh, critiquing and clarifying white feminism's failure to recognize intersections of identity, as well as trans rights. I can be troubled by any form of feminism that excludes trans women. So I'm a very inclusive feminist. I think my feminism uh, always incorporates women of color and trans women. So I don't reject feminism or any tenets of feminism so much as I view it as a large movement with a lot of scholarship. And any part of that movement, I believe, is incomplete when it doesn't acknowledge the intersections of identity that uh, women of color, trans women, and disabled women face. Now, in terms of the science of why I'm a feminist, gosh, there is so much. There is just so much. I decided to just go with like three big, obvious, amazing things I have seen in the research. Number one, whenever women are educated and empowered economically, the culture that does that sees poverty rates decrease. Wow, really? We can fight poverty just by educating and economically empowering women? Yeah, we can. That shows up in the data. Two, and this should be particularly interest to many people who uh, say they're against feminism, we find that unwanted pregnancies and teenage pregnancies decline whenever women have access to education and economic empowerment, meaning they have the right to go to college and they have the right to hold a job and make their own income. So for people who would say be pro-life, who are often anti-feminist, isn't it strange that you actually have fewer teen pregnancies, fewer unwanted pregnancies, and therefore fewer abortions when women have access to education and economic empowerment? And number three, we have found consistently that rates of domestic violence against women and against men decrease when women have access to education and economic empowerment. It seems over and over and over that the benefits to society and the people in society, including men, including children, including families, are there when we treat women as equal members of society. I think the data-driven case is wildly conclusive, and that is not why I'm a feminist. <laughs> not at all. You know, I grew up evangelical. And I was a complementarian. And a, a complementarianism is a fancy word for people who would say, I think men and women are equal. They just have different roles. Now, where have we heard that before? <laughs> We're the same, but we should just occupy different spaces. I think we had a civil rights movement to push back against that notion, but somehow we snuck that in the back door in uh in Protestant Christianity, and I suppose to some degree Catholic Christianity as well. Um, and and sadly, this is 
a situation that actually isn't unique to white Christianity, uh, the Christianity of folks of all shades and tones of melanin have struggled with. And I don't ascribe that anymore. I was always hesitant with complementarianism. And the reason was I just knew too many smart, competent, and capable women who knew the Bible. You know, my mom has always been a profound spiritual mentor and leader in my life. My grandmother was a profound spiritual leader and mentor in my life. Those two seemed to know more about the Bible and more about prayer than any of the men I knew, including the people who preached from the pulpit on Sunday morning. And uh, as I became an adult, and I entered into an adult Sunday school class uh, before I got married, and then after, uh, my Sunday school teacher was a woman named Kathy, who was an exceptional Bible teacher, just really, really good Bible teacher, and was also an egalitarian. (laughs) And uh, seeing her approach to life and to Christianity really made me struggle with a complementarianism I didn't like in the first place. And then, of course, if you know my story, you know I lost my faith and became an atheist. And as an atheist, it just made no sense, this whole complementarian thing, uh, complementarian. I just realized this is ridiculous, and I am a feminist. And so I started speaking as a feminist before I began admitting I was an atheist. And then when I sort of came back to a a different form of a a science-informed mysticism, My feminism continued and has only gotten more intense and more radical with time as I've gotten more and more and more frustrated with the way that patriarchy hurts women and, gosh, it hurts men too. One of the major parts of my next book is talking about the ways that patriarchy hurts women and hurts men. We have in the research so clearly that it's not just that women are fighting for their liberation when they are feminists. They are fighting for everyone's liberation. There's something called the Man Box that was funded uh, by, believe it or not, (laughs) Axe Body Spray in part. But it's real credible research that I first learned of, uh, as you can probably expect from my good friend, Dr. Hillary McBride. And it basically is the set of social expectations that are placed on men about self-sufficiency and being tough and being attractive but not working too hard at it and being very manly and not doing women's work and never being gay and always thinking of and pursuing sex and sexual domination and winning and taking control of others and the ways that that leads to perpetual isolation and mental health crisis. We find over and over and over that when men attain what they want, when they become dominant in their career field, when they have a family that serves them, a wife and children who are submissive, they don't have the relationship skills to be close to others. They have acquaintances that they work with, and as they get later in their career and retire, they get depressed and they get lonely. And I think patriarchy is the reason middle-aged white men are one of the most at-risk groups die by suicide of anyone in the United States. Feminism is not just about liberating women. What I have found is being a man who is a feminist is I get freed so much from the social expectations of what relationships should look like, 
that I am free to be present in my feelings, in relationships with people of all gender identities, that I no longer have to view others through the lens of domination or sexual conquest, but can approach people as people instead of objects to use for my fulfillment. I'm a feminist, not just because I believe it's right or good or necessary or that one of my most deeply held values is the fact that all people should be equal in the eyes of both law and humanity, but also because pursuing feminism liberates me as well, as feminism can also help liberate men everywhere, as it also liberates women. Well, here we are social distancing. We're in our homes. And we've never had more strain on our mental health than we do right now. And that's why I'm so excited that BetterHelp is a sponsor of Ask Science Mike. Because BetterHelp is an online counseling service that can meet you in your home via text chat, phone calls, or video chat. It's affordable, private, online counseling available anytime, anywhere with what licensed therapists who specialize in a range of mental health challenges. I'm a subscriber of BetterHealth myself. I've got a BetterHelp counselor that I talk to regularly, and uh, you can get 10% off your first month if you go to betterhelp.com slash science mike. They're going to do that just for my listeners, but you know what? This is a time of great economic uncertainty, and so if you have faced income loss, BetterHelp also offers financial aid packages and a sliding scale for uh, fees and rates based on income. So this is a company that's proactive about trying to get mental health out to everyone who can benefit from it. So if you'd like help dealing with grief or anxiety or the feelings that you have right now related to this pandemic, please visit betterhelp.com slash science mic today where you can get 10% off your first month's membership. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, Science Mike, could you weigh in on your thoughts in regards to transgender women competing in sports? Do they really have an advantage over cis women? Should it even matter? Thanks. You know, I open this program with this statement. Every sincere question deserves an honest and non-judgmental response. I've been saying it every week for weeks now. And this question has made me repeat that phrase over and over and over in my head because, gosh, I wanted to skip this one for two reasons. Number one, I am wildly pro-trans rights. I just, if there's a situation involving trans rights with the deep marginalization that community faces, you're going to see me get in their corner very consistently. And number two, I just don't like sports. <laughs> I mean, of all the, you know, if you've been to one of my live shows, you know, I, I, I'm a student. I study so many things all the time. And so almost any question someone asks me, I have a base of knowledge and things I've read that I can recall to, to meaningfully respond to a question. And I just don't follow sports at all. When people gauge how little I know about sports. I will right now name every NBA team I can think of. 
Chicago Bulls, L.A. Lakers. I think the Clippers are NBA. They might be NFL, and I think they're in L.A. The Cubs, I feel like, are a baseball team, not a bit, not a basketball team. This is there's no performance in what I just did. That's not a joke. That was a sincere effort to name literally every NBA team I can think of. And you can try any sport you want, and my answer is going to be comparable. (laughs) I don't know about football, baseball, basketball, tennis, golf, hockey, curling, (laughs) track and field. You name a sport, and I I I can stun you with immediate and profound ignorance about that sport. So I just feel both unqualified to speak into this question and wildly biased. Because what am I going to say in most situations? Trans people are so deeply marginalized in our society. What is the concern here? And I, you know, I just know people get really mad as I say that. Uh, And that's okay. You get to be mad at me for saying that. I acknowledge and I honor your feelings. Um, So I tried to learn more and I Googled and my Google skills are so limited because now we're talking about sports and I just don't know about sports. I did find a piece on the hill.com titled, do transgender athletes have an unfair advantage that I thought did a good job of summarizing the science as I understand it regarding transgender women competing in sports. It's so interesting to me, by the way, that the debate is about trans women and not trans men. Have we noticed that? It's almost like trans women are often uh, marginalized in ways that are unique to trans men, both of whom are wildly marginalized. And basically, what this piece breaks down is that um, when we're talking about, most of us are talking about sporting events for children adolescents, and how there aren't really serious musculoskeletal sex differences before puberty. And as puberty happens, when children uh, begin a transition and they undergo hormone therapy, within about a year, we see their musculoskeletal differences begin to go away and they begin to look like the gender they identify as in terms of their performance potential. Uh, Now, obviously, there's not like a ton of research here. This is all really new stuff. But it is interesting. We already allow and encourage some degree of difference in sports. Um, This article used a really great analogy or example. It's not an analogy that, you know, uh, in wrestling, there's weight classes because you don't want uh, a 210-pound person wrestling a 119-pound person. That doesn't seem fair. And yet on the basketball court, we're totally cool with someone five four is on the same court as someone seven feet tall. Um, so we already allow some kind of physical difference and variation in our athletics events. Uh, so I think we should also admit that some of the lines we place here are arbitrary. They're already not based in science, and they're simply based on how we can enjoy a given uh, event. So... 
really short answer. I know you'd like more. I know you'd like me to go deeper. I just, I, I know so much more about uh, trans issues, trans rights, about the medical science behind uh, trans identity and trans folks. Uh, but I just don't know anything about sports. And uh, I spent 40 minutes trying to build up enough of a base of knowledge to competently address the question. So I'll just tell you, in my opinion, you wanted my thoughts. Uh, I absolutely, of course, think that trans women should be included in women's sports. Um, yeah, I just do. Hi, Science Mike. My name is Clara. Why is sugar bad for you? Well, Clara, thanks for such a timely question. You know, I've been at home a lot lately uh, because, you know, we're all spending time at home right now. And I've been eating a lot of sugar and I had been eating less sugar. And because I'm home and I'm anxious and I'm bored, I keep eating sugar. And your question was a really good reminder to me that I need to be more careful about what I eat. Uh, but the first thing I'd like to tell you is that there's actually nothing wrong with sugar. Sugar by itself isn't bad. Or more accurately, sugar not by itself isn't bad. Sugar naturally occurs in lots of foods that we eat, like fruits and vegetables. Things like apples have sugar, but things like carrots have sugar too. And as part of our diet, these kind of fruits and vegetables that have sugar in them are perfectly fine. They're even good for us. Sugar is only potentially harmful when it's refined or added to foods. So when we eat things like cereal that have a lot of added sugar or candy or cakes or other kinds of food that would really surprise you, all kinds of foods that you don't realize have sugar in them because they don't taste sweet, they have sugar added as they're processed. And food manufacturers do that because it makes it more tasty and it makes us buy more of it. And that's because our bodies crave sugar when we eat because it really is a potent source of calories. When we eat sugar, our bodies and our brains say, wow, that was good. Do that again. Because in the natural world, sugar is really hard to come by. But in our world, where we can put food on shelves and in boxes, sugar is too easy to get. And when we eat too much sugar, our bodies release a hormone called insulin. Now, we always release insulin when we eat, but we release more when we eat lots of sugar in order to control the amount of sugar in our bloodstream and to help us use that sugar that's in our bloodstream. And when our bodies make too much insulin, too often we can develop conditions like diabetes, which are bad for our health. So what we know is that when we eat less sugar and when we don't eat added or processed sugars, it changes the ways that we taste food. When I don't eat cookies and when I don't eat sugar cereal, something like an apple or a carrot can taste exquisitely wonderful. Such an intense sensation for something that compared to a sugary snack, tastes pretty dull and plain. And so what we've learned through science is when we eat less sugar, not only are our bodies more healthy, it also makes it easier for us to eat more healthy foods more often. So again, sugar isn't bad. 
but sugar when it's refined into an additive in food or is added to foods can change the way that we taste things and change the way our bodies work in ways that make us unhealthy. And that's why we try to avoid sugar. Our next question comes in via email and it reads, I've been in therapy for several years. A couple years ago, my therapist suggested trying EMDR for my PTSD from childhood sexual trauma, and I agreed to try it, even though it felt a little woo to me. I was surprised to find it to be the single most effective therapy I've experienced. Can you tell me what is going on in the brain during EMDR and how it differs from regular talk therapy? Well, I think I've answered an EMDR question before, but uh, there is a little more data since I answered that. I think it's been a, a year or more since I've weighed in on EMDR. First of all, EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. It's something that can be done by a trained therapist, and uh, it works by having you look at a pointer or an object that moves across the midline of your vision while you focus on feelings or memories. And the theory is that by moving your eyes in this way, it encourages activity and coordination between the two hemispheres of the brain and encourages us to uh, neurologically reprocess traumatic experiences. EMDR is pretty new, and there's limited research on it so far. The research that we do have tends to involve very small sample sizes, and so there is genuine disagreements on the efficacy of EMDR in total and when compared to other more conventional approaches like talk therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. So I just want to say that. Uh, and I, I love EMDR. I've done it myself. I've had really great experiences with EMDR, especially when it's a part of a more comprehensive treatment strategy, including trauma therapy treatment program. EMDR alone doesn't seem to be nearly as effective as EMDR as a part of a larger relationship with a professional therapist. The theory, the hypothesis, I would even say, generally um, is this thing about forcing activity uh, with the two brains' hemispheres uh, that is unique and different from talking therapy. But some, some studies have shown EMDR to be more effective than talking therapy, and some studies have shown it to be about as effective as talking therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, so we just don't have final answers on that stuff yet. I would say that if you're doing EMDR with a therapist who is trained in it, it won't hurt you and it can help you. It won't hurt and it can help. But you should be doing it with a trained therapist. Someone who is not a licensed therapist should not be uh, doing EMDR for anyone and you should not allow them to try EMDR techniques with you unless they are a licensed therapist. I've seen uh, life coaches and uh, spiritual gurus and other people trying EMDR. That's not okay. That's not safe. Do EMDR only with a licensed therapist, and it can be an effective part of a treatment program. You know, I so love talking with you every week on Ask Science Mike. And I'd love for you to participate in the future. You can do that by going to AskScienceMike.com where you can send me a voicemail or an email question for inclusion in the program. 
And of course, the people who pick the questions on the show are my patrons on Patreon. Folks, I need you more than ever uh, on Patreon. Uh, I've lost something like 80% of my income in the last three weeks, and I know a lot of us are. But for those of you who still have income and are still working, if you find it in your hearts to go to AskScienceMike.com and tap that Patreon button, believe me when I say every little bit helps. Uh, This is a very challenging time for those of us who are media creators. And uh, there's not any other work I can approach or try right now while I am in home confinement. Uh, because I'm in California with a stay-at-home order. And uh, I got to stay home. So if you'd love to help, I'd sure take it. You can go to AskScienceMike.com and join us on Patreon. Ask Science Mike is brought to you by the single most wonderful team in all of media. Greg Nordine is our producer and sound designer who has always made the show sound so great. Caitlin Hermstad is the show's producer. Victory Palmazano is the executive producer. Andrew Golucky provides pre-production services. Brent Cradle, management services. Tanner Hearn and the folks at Inverse provide uh, business acceleration and logistical support. And all of the patrons on Patreon make the show possible. And we can never forget my dear friend Jed Botterford, who wrote and recorded the Ask Science Mike theme song. Thanks for listening, my friends, and I'll talk to you again next week.